you'd have no issue then with them changing that scene. So if they're Gus Van Sant comes along and does his updated Nick and Nora's <laughs> Infinite playlist. This is going to be like, the Beatles are gone. It's going to be like his Rob Zombie moment from Psycho. <laughs> Cardi B. <laughs> just a really weird shot where she just turns and like looks at the camera and lightning bolts strike in Nick's head. <laughs> yeah, that is what it's about. Mm-hmm. We've we've ruined this movie. Uh, like even in our <laughs> our fandom of it, we have found a way to to make it dark. Uh, and unpleasant and it's it's such a sweet movie <laughs> it, it is so so pleasant it is um i it, oh my gosh it's actually even more pleasant than you think because after like going through the audiobook oh the audiobook is horrible it's like it, it has the same so it was it was a two author setup right it's they they switched yeah. uh chapters like i guess the male perspective from a male author yes. and then uh, okay I don't know about that, but they do switch perspectives. I don't know who wrote what. I would imagine the guy wrote the guy part, but man, it is just fr- like you hate both of them. You hate both of them in the book. There's a scene where Triss and and Nora, like Triss teaches Nora how to make out in the bathroom, in the ladies' bathroom. It's really ugh, they really went into it too in the book too. They're she, uh, because she describes it as, oh, she, she sucked on the upper part of my lip and then the lower part. And then when she put my tongue in my mouth, she touched places that I didn't know existed in my mouth. I'm like, this is nonsense. Is that like the De Palma version? If he had his hands yes. on this weird. Yes. That's what this movie is. <laughs> what the book is. The book is the sleazy version. It's exactly what it is. Um, and you didn't like it. Yeah. And you're, you're a fan of the, the, the slutty versions, the slutty alternates. So it didn't work for you. No, because I need to see it on screen. I don't have the imagination to form these pictures in my head. (laughs) (laughs) Thing is, so much of, I think, eroticism and and what is, like, amorous and exciting to me is not really the act itself, but everything that kind of leads up to it. Um, and, And the incredible amount of... I guess maybe it's just for me because, like, I I feel like I have to put a lot of effort into making any sort of that happen with any lady. And so I really do appreciate the amount of work and and the situation and how one thing leads to another. Something that the pornography industry doesn't give a shit about. Low production values, low, you know, poor screenwriters get right to the good stuff, I guess. But not for me. And so that's one of the things that I like about Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist. Because it's all a build up to that moment. And because you've got Nora who is somebody who is relatively kind of closed off, I think. And Kat Denning plays it really, really well too. And so because she's willing to go on that like physical journey with with Nick. Like is really, really meaningful. So uh, that's why like kind of... For me, it it meant a lot. I can imagine you in the director's chair, Burt Reynolds style hair and beard, <laughs> saying that uh, he wants Nick and Nora. He wants the fans of Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist to just sit in it, <laughs> just after they <laughs> after they're done. They just have to sit in it and see how the movie ends. <laughs> this has all been very disturbing. <laughs> this is a very disturbing version.
Welcome to Trilogy in Theory. My name is Webb, and this is my co-host Mike. And our Michael Sarah trilogy has concluded. And I was worried. I was like, this is the first time that our trilogies are really connected by an actor. And that's something that you can find uh, in in one of those giant $5 Walmart bins. Like, three movies by Bruce Willis. or three movies. And I was like, I don't want our podcast to be associated with bargain bin <laughs> deals. Even though but, you love them. You do love to consume those bargain bin deals. I like finding deals. I don't know if I enjoy <laughs> sifting through the masses for that. But uh, I'm, I'm glad we did it because the idea that you brought was the – like Michael Sarah's influence on, on, on love, mm-hmm. I, I suppose. So something along those lines. Uh, his, his romantic influences. And boy – I think these three films, uh, Juno, Nick and Nora, and Youth and Revolt, very different levels, calibers, quality and quantity of romantic influence on our three female leads. And, and before we get into Sarah, can we talk about the female leads? I love all of them. I love Juno, I love uh, Nora, and I love Sheenie. How do you feel about our three female leads? I think there's a reason, uh, not only, you know, the actress, uh, Portia Doubleday that plays Sheenie, um, you know, she hasn't had, uh, as many hits after Juno as Ellen Page, but I also oh. think that there's something to be said that, uh, a character named Sheenie was never going to become as iconic as a character named Juno. I just don't think we <laughs> as a, the populace would ever let that stand though, with that particular name. Well, they're all strong-willed romantic counterparts to Mr. Sarah, and I think, you know, as you, if you're looking at this as some sort of thematic arc, uh, you know, the the biggest jump in uh, hyper masculinity certainly is Youth and Revolt. Uh, from you know, the, we talked about the coolness of Polly Bleeker to the lack of confidence that we see as he's getting into the uh, the sort of post high school uh, romantic life in Nicanora. Certainly, when you call it an alter ego and youth revolt, uh, you're going to get a very different uh, level of confidence, a level of anxiety from Michael Sarah and youth and revolt. But the consistent theme, if there is one other than the chosen actor, is that all of the romantic pursuits of the Michael Sarah characters in this are all very strong willed and assured young women, which is uh, it's an understatement to say it's incredibly refreshing. Uh, especially at films that are targeting a, you know, teenage young demographic that they, you know, what's reflected back at these young women are ones who don't necessarily need Michael Sarah. I think that's also, um, you know, there's various levels of that too, from Juno to Youth and Revolt. I mean, in Juno, Ellen Page, her character basically makes all of the decisions about the pregnancy uh, without any um, after-school special moments with Michael Sarah, Like, he's not really part... He's supportive, but he's not really part of that process. I think that in Youth of Revolt, he takes a far more active process in the dismantling oh, of this, yeah. young woman's, this young woman's life. But we came to the conclusion in that particular episode, we think that uh, Sheenie here, although not as iconic, not as iconic as Juno, she probably, even without Nick Twist, could have 
done that herself. She would she would find a way to to get what she get what she wants. There's something about that character that she's like the the cat that's kind of you know playing with this this twisp character. Like the, there's a, she's sort of bemused by his enthusiasm for her. So yes, I, I think that you're you're correct in like hey we can lead off with uh, the the actresses here, and I I really like all three women that cinematic Michael Sarah had in his life at this at the end of the the aughts I guess that he he had strong yeah. women that he was pursuing. Uh, Juno, even though she has I guess self doubts and she's she's struggling to let Bleeker into her life, she's. Still confident in what she wants. Uh, you've got Nora, who also, like Juno, is a little unsure of herself. Doesn't feel like she is at the caliber of something like Triss by the end Can of I it. Can I stop you there for a second? Told... Yeah. We didn't really get into it in the Nick and Nora episode, other than my <laughs> probably awkward comparison or advice to uh, Triss that she should uh, – take her cues from a much reviled Ridley Scott film and Cameron Diaz's character in the, in the counselor is the film harmed in hindsight, maybe even at time of release that there's not a stronger known uh, quantity as far as the actress playing Triss that uh, maybe contributes to at least my feelings that I just want Triss to be, dismissed uh, early on because Kat Dennings is just like, there's just such an it quality to her. And that's even with her playing Nora, who almost undersells every interaction she has with someone like she's, she's by no means a broad character. And yet you really are drawn to her much more so than the, uh, the horrible ex that uh, keeps popping into the picture. No, I think it's a reminder. I think you need to have that character keep popping up. Because Triss is somebody that Nick is trying to shed throughout this film. Even in his early interactions with Nora, he's very much like, oh, did, did Triss ever talk to you about this? Did she listen to this? Did she? So I think she needs to very much be a presence there throughout until that wonderful moment where he <laughs> abandons her in that shady and, and clearly unsafe parking lot in the middle of the night in New York City. Um, unfortunately, that has to happen for for Nick to get over that hump, and um, and Kat Dennings, uh, Nora gets to allow uh, at least like leave Jay Burchell's character in the dust and, and and tax on a little more to that bill, and that's her version of abandoning um, her previous love interest. So I think they both have to go through that arc, and that's why I think Tris is uh, is important, and it needs to be there. Uh, consistently throughout. I won't deny is that you have to have like very strong female characters to play against Michael Sarah because he, even in the film where that's kind of the hook where in Youth and Revolt where there is going to be like an alter ego, an alpha presence 
uh, of him, a hyper masculine one. He also like, like there's it's strange that Nick and Nora work so well because Nora is so different from Juno and that Juno is talking a mile a minute. You know, if one joke doesn't work, she's got another like in the very next sentence. But Michael Sarah, even in his more well-known comedies, like something like, you know, Arrested Development, Superbad, he's always the one uh, reacting to the sort of the loud, brash character. He's underplaying it. Did you have any issue with him and Cat uh, Dennings? Because it's it's weird to me how well it works when both of them are kind of playing similar roles. That they neither one uh, is going to be the uh, the alpha character in their respective friend groups. They're going to be the ones kind of you know the, the wallflower, more like commenting on everything that's going on around them quietly. That's a good point. It's kind of the opposite of how Youth and Revolt is, where both of them would be the alpha male in their respective uh, yes. yeah. social mm-hmm. groups. So we have different combinations throughout all three of them in that, re- in that yeah. regard. Uh, <laughs> That's where kind of the romantic influence of Michael Sarah comes into play. Because it's so easy to label Michael Sarah as, oh, he's just this like awkward, nerdy guy that plays you know, kind of himself in all of these films. And I don't think that's the case. Because... He is changing his performance to accommodate these three very different protagonists. It, it, on the surface, it may very much look like, oh, Michael Sarah just doing Michael Sarah, And I think that's doing a disservice. Uh, how do you think he accommodates his performance for each of these films? In, in Juno, you, you, he has to take a back seat, play kind of the counter. Because she's such a strong character, kind of challenge her. Uh, and then you've got some, and then you've got somebody who's totally dejected. I, I think in in Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, and then you've got somebody who is kind of willing to do whatever it takes. In the last one, how is he changing his performances? I, I think Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist is probably the one I'm most impressed with because, I mean, it's it's obviously an attempt to to reset or just kind of present Michael Sarah as a uh, romantic lead. Uh, now, Juno, the the way it's written and the way Ellen Page plays it, a lot of the heavy lifting is done by the writing and her performance as far as idolizing him as, like, the cool guy. Like, forcing the audience to, like, see it through her eyes as far as how she sees this guy that, as we talked about in the episode, outwardly it just seems like an awkward dork. Like why, why are you so infatuated with him? But it's always hard to play. And we see it a lot in rom-coms like, you know, the heartbroken character. I think Meg Ryan probably as much as she is seen as an iconic uh, romantic comedy figure in that genre, probably doesn't get enough credit for how she makes heartbroken, charming, likable kind of sexy like you know she's uh, i think of you know the very premise of when harry met sally is that you're going to watch someone's sort of young adulthood uh the challenges and usually the failures at young love as you're going into your professional life and she always makes it cute and you want to like come back uh you don't find that to be like the lull before like the good moments so it's challenging for michael sarah who's already known for being kind of like more inward and quiet and him and this particular film playing heartbroken and sad, but he has to be the male lead that allows himself to open up to like the possibility of something new. I think it's a far more difficult task. And I do think that he is 
kind of turning the dial a little bit on the Michael Sarah persona, uh, where he doesn't necessarily have to, he doesn't have to be on. I don't think he, there's, he plays Nick. Like he's got to make like, Oh, I've got to make sure he's likable in this scene, or I've got to make sure that I'm kind of funny in this scene. I think he just like plays the material as it lays. And he's almost like the best, like an acting speak, I guess the best scene partner here. And that he's just going to play the moment. He's not going to play to like tailor the film to make him look more presentable as the male lead, even though that's what he's, he's playing here. I, I think it was a, like a really delicate balancing act because you know, you kind of mentioned you found yourself like at certain points, you're, you're almost like yelling at this character, like, come on, dude, get with it. Like, just, you know, you're almost screaming yeah. at the screen to like, come, like, this is so Nora. Is so obviously it like, just like open your eyes. And that is something to where the film, even though it's just 90 minutes, uh, it, I think that it's, it could really go off the rails quickly. If you just find yourself just getting too annoyed with the character to even give a shit, if he finds happiness in that one night. So, that's probably the one I'm more impressed with as far as him tailoring his persona. I think Youth and Revolt is just all play. Like all of that, all of that sort of restraint <laughs> that I'm giving him like kudos for and Nick Nora, like Youth and Revolt, it, it to me, this is an odd reference, I know, but I remember an interview with uh, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson where he got to visit the set of Eyes Wide Shut and talk to Tom Cruise. And, you know, of course, he's like getting to see Stanley Kubrick work. Um, and, he wrote Magnolia and sent it to him because he knew for like the last, how long did they shoot eyes? Watch that was like two years, three years. Like, I mean, it was a long fucking time. They're shooting this movie. He wrote Frank DJ Mackey for Tom Cruise. He's like, dude, I know you've been like pent up and restrained, like shooting this movie where everything is just this internal battle of this character of you reacting to horrible <laughs> things and not being able to express it. Uh, and I'm just going to create the most brash, obnoxious, loud, abrasive character for you just so you can unleash it. Youth and Revolt is Michael Sarah's Frank TJ Mackey moment for me where he just gets to <laughs> unleash everything. So uh, if you aren't a fan of Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist and that particular version of romantic lead Michael Sarah. That is why here at Trilogy in Theory, we are presenting you an alternate option in Youth and Revolt, which is I know is where you lean, Webb. I know that you're just going to take it away with this one, with, with Youth and Revolt. <laughs> so I, I think Raging is a Machine is a better album than Evil Empire, their follow-up. But I kind of like Evil Empire more because it takes a few more chances. And that's kind of why I like Michael Sarah and Youth and Revolt just a little bit more. Uh, because, and... and I hate, oh gosh, sometimes the marketing people have to find a snippet, an excerpt from a from a review and be like, oh, okay, this is how we're going to sell this movie. And one, and it's plastered right there on the Blu-ray. It's like, this is Michael Sarah is a badass. You have never seen him like this before. And I'm like, whew, I wholeheartedly disagree. This is still within Sarah's camp. Like he's, he's, he is stretching a little bit. That is true, and it's it's fun to see. And you're right. This is about. I don't want to limit Michael Cera. I feel like he's, it, like if you take a look at a little bit, like this is the end. If you take a like his little moments in that, he can go much further than Youth and Revolt. Mm -hmm. But this is Michael Cera unleashed within reason and in a very particular and and in an oddly villainous and charismatic way. So while I agree, I think he's doing a lot of heavy lifting in Nick and Nora 
to fine-tune himself and adjust it perfectly for the material, I think that's a better performance. But I have a little more fun with Youth and Revolt. My response would be, <laughs> I, I just drop, you know, uh, some knowledge, drop a, a interaction from Nick and Nora is when Cat Dennings, they're having a uh, a fight in his car as they're, you know, on their their quest to find her drunken friend across the city. And he <laughs> tells her to, she doesn't have to shout that this isn't a train. <laughs> like, just like he says it in the most like calm manner possible, but he is like reprimanding her for like being hyper aggressive to him. Um, that is, that is, I'm going to put that as evidence against youth and revolt that <laughs> we don't need Michael Sarah to shout. This is, <laughs> we can have him, uh, you know, at a nice seven, doesn't have to be a 10. So how much do you think how uh, the, what the parents are giving off affect the relationships and our leads? And of course I say that because I've got, you know, a, a 19-month-old daughter that I'm going to have to steer clear of the possible Trents or or Nicks or who knows, bleakers even. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean you you may very well be in a position one day where you're you're threatening uh, to punch a young Polly Bleaker in the in the nuts, which you know there's a maybe a deleted scene where I I wouldn't mind seeing that that take of J.K. Simmons. Uh, I mean maybe it's not the time or place in in the hospital to do it, but uh, yeah, just a pat on the shoulder there. Uh, God, the 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 influence of the the parents. Um, <laughs> I mean I think Nick Twisp and his his attempts at young anarchy are totally explained when you have uh, Estelle Twist, played by Gene Smart here, just choosing the most atrocious male figures <laughs> in his life, and yeah. still with a very active active sex life, <laughs> where young Nick is told to, to, to do the dishes as, I mean, we're talking about these very thin walls in this, like, trailer park <laughs> where she's going to retire to the bedroom with the, you know, that particular male suitor. God, you go from Zach Galifianakis to Ray Liotta. And that's speaking nothing of her, you know, previously failed relationship with Steve Buscemi. <laughs> like just an odd, odd cast of uh, characters here. I, I like Nick and Nora that, uh, at least from Nick's point of view, that there isn't a, a parental presence because I feel like, uh, especially with you know young love and young heartbreak at this point, I I like that it's, you know it's very uh, just recently rewatched uh, Fast Times at Richmond High, and I've always liked how incredibly lacking it is as far as the where are the parents in this that we're just peeking into the teenage existence. But when I remember my teenage years, at least my interactions with uh, you know my peer group, that just wasn't a part of my life. Like you know they. I'm I'm not saying that I had you know that I grew up with a Gene Smart or someone that uh wasn't involved in my life, 
but the inner workings of my, you know, personal, uh, I guess my relationship trauma as a teenager, I didn't really allow my parents to be uh, active participants in the, in that world. So I think in a film aimed at like a younger audience, I really liked Nick and Nora's viewpoint, just the, the absence of them, <laughs> but maybe, maybe youth and revolt uh, plays better to that crowd. This sort of, <laughs> active rebellion against these adult <laughs> figures like the uh the trailer moment of uh his alter ego francois dillinger saying thanks for breakfast and then just <laughs> sliding the the cereal bowl like just off into the ground just <laughs> completely dismissive of you know this world that they've created for him and maybe even kind of deserving of it i know you're a huge gene smart fan but maybe she has uh, she has brought this upon herself as far as this little youthful rebellion we see in Youth and Revolt. That's fair, and and really the reason that it it, it normally would not have stuck out to me, but <laughs> again, I guess my 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 parental instincts jumped right in with Nick and Nora. Like these two teenagers are out and about in New York City the entire night. I feel like more could have gone wrong, but I'm glad it didn't, uh, certainly. Making it seem like a very small town, like just traveling across the city, just like, oh, we'll go here, we'll go there. And I think as an adult, I'm thinking like, God, wouldn't that take a long time? Like, I, this is just like so much time on the road here trying to track down this this Caroline figure. And I just don't, or the, you know, the band, the Where's Fluffy. I just, that's something we didn't really get into with the, the Nick and Nora element, but I, I think it captures uh, something that I'm sort of wistful about when you're young, where there's that expectation that like on any given night, like there's so much that could happen. Like, you know, there's like, you know, when you go out that night, it's like a big deal to like, to just go out and you may not have, I remember so many times when I was younger, we had no plans. We we're just like, let's just, let's just go and see what happens. Let's just go to this general area and see what we can get into. And they have a little bit more of a point with this, this band that they all like, but yeah, there was there was that sort of like I think it captures something. I think Juno Juno manages to do it successfully as well, but it's not high concept, but it's definitely more specific, right? Like the a teen pregnancy. What's more most impressive about it to me is that uh, at least with the relationship with the Sarah character, which is the point of our little wrap up show here, is how genuinely unaffected he seems to be by the pregnancy and i don't i don't think that it's played like his character's disinterested uh in this like it's some sort of problem to be swept away i just think that he it speaks to how into juno he is that there's there's nothing that you know their their fellow students nothing his parents nothing will get in the way of how he feels and you you spoke to that as far as that he's just he just tells it like it is like you know he just he always kind of leads with like his particular heart and he doesn't really care about anyone else's opinion, but because of the way Michael Sarah plays it, I don't think he's playing it. Like he's just an ass that he's just like, only my opinion matters. He just knows how he feels and he just leads with that. Yeah. I'm, I'm thrilled that we did these three movies. Uh, I think Michael Sarah is uh, too often painted like, Oh, he's just this guy and he does one thing. Um, there's a lot of nuances to his work, and it makes me kind of sad that we don't get, well, maybe not an annual, but every couple years, you know, I, I would love to have a Michael Sarah starring vehicle. Whenever he's ready to get back in the game, I think uh, we're gonna we're gonna see a wonderful little comeback uh, with whatever he wants to do. I can't imagine him 
want you know doing a movie because he needs the cash i feel like he is a very content young man so i'm excited for whatever it is that he does next i mean it would certainly only help our numbers for the for this back catalog <laughs> whenever, whenever he makes his rousing return <laughs> when he gets the the push as leading man romantic material again hopefully they will discover this this month of episodes on uh on michael Sear and his particular romantic influence a postscript here going back to uh, you like the personal stuff i don't know if anyone listening likes the the personal you know the, the little family stories or anything of that nature but so two or three years ago i'm like sort of texting around texting with my stepmom like you know hey i always like you know ask my dad head on what do you want for christmas and it was a tradition and we're talking about since i was like a young boy who didn't have any disposable income so i'm having to like you know borrow money from the other parental figure to buy something you know it's basically a gift from them but <laughs> it's the thought that counts you know he would always say socks and i'd laugh but he was being dead serious he's like i i need socks i wear them every day why wouldn't you get me socks and he would actually get kind of put out in this you know stoic gruff you know manly man manner that no one ever got him socks for christmas so he had to spend his own hard-earned money when all he wanted was socks <laughs> because he wanted what was necessary so you know when i became an adult i always made sure to get him socks like something else as well that's a, where there's a little more thought but it's because he always wanted socks well uh, a few years ago i'm texting uh with my stepmom like you know I'm, i've got the socks covered for dad for the old man anything else you know he's into anything else he you know that would be more fun that he doesn't think that he needs but that he would like because that's you know that's what christmas is about like something that you wouldn't buy for yourself necessarily and she's like well um we, they're they're redoing the house and he had this like kind of this like they redid the attic space and like turned part of it into like a little office for him and then she said that she was she was doing something to decorate it as a surprise to him with all the things that he always liked as a young man, but that he had put aside, you know, the old saying he put aside childish things. And I worked at a comic book shop. I started collecting comics uh, due to my uncle. No influence from, from my father. My uncle gave me a copy, God, when I was like 10, of The Dark Knight Returns. And it, like, of course, blew my fucking mind that comics could even be that at that age. But apparently my dad, as a kid, loved DC Comics, and in particular, Green Lantern. Now, I worked at a comic book shop. I collected comics since I was a kid into adulthood, as you're talking about. I didn't put away the childish things. Never once did my dad ever say, hey, I used to really be a fan of Green Lantern. Like, you know, Hal Jordan. I love that character. love the powers. love the design. And so it was this cool moment where I was shocked. I was, like, getting a window into something my dad being a sort of old-fashioned man's man never revealed about himself and it, i got to be a part of because i am in that world and i have green lantern stuff like contributing to this 
this room that sort of represented the things that he gave up when he had a family of his own and you know god damn it he just wanted socks because he needed socks and so now you know that's a cool moment and my dad it was cool that he actually genuinely appreciated it. i thought he was gonna like start <laughs> beating his entire family for for, for you know <laughs> if i asked for socks now you gave me a green lantern room what is this <laughs> what is this nonsense but he was he was really appreciative of it and it was a cool sort of holiday surprise so that's my you can you, know, you can cut all that out i don't know who this i know you would appreciate the story i don't know if listeners would but yeah my father his secret shame of his fandom for for green lantern that he kept secret from me for decades <laughs> so that was the the christmas present for him I think many people who saw the Green Lantern movie would agree that it's okay to keep a little bit <laughs> I knew you were going there. <laughs> I knew you were going there. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. I, I you know, I, I was one of those uh, Green Lantern movie apologists for a long, long time. I was like, it's not that bad because I had just gotten into the character. I read uh, Secret Origins and I was like, oh my God, this is an amazing introduction of the character. And then I went back and read, uh, oh. The uh, the Green Arrow, Green Ooh. Lantern, yeah, like uh, hard traveling heroes. Yeah, the, I, I love that story. Uh, these uh, these books. So I, I just got into the character, and the movie came out, and, and you know I like Ryan Reynolds because of Two Guys, a Girl, and Pizza Place, and mm-hmm. <laughs> as much <boy>, too. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was just like. <laughs> You know, as the hatred was coming in, I was like, it's not that bad, guys. And then I wa- and then it came out on uh, Blu-ray, and I found the, the steelbook of it, and the steelbook is really shiny and nice, and I was like, oh, I gotta get it. My brother's like, don't! <laughs> but I did anyway. See, I'm, and I- I'm putting this on you, because <laughs> you went out of your way to get a steelbook edition of Green Lantern. Because I, I, I had the same reaction as you when I saw it. I'm like, yeah, it wasn't that bad. I've never revisited the film i think i did buy the blu-ray on a black friday sale for like three dollars but i've never like cracked it open but this is all you web this is your 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 investment in something that was a downward trending stock <laughs> was, yeah and yeah. uh and then i did now you're now you're a hater now you're like the rest of the internet hating on my dad for his I'm... christmas surprise <laughs> I'm not. I swear, I'm not. But you know, when I watched it after buying the Steel Book, I was just, you know, I'm watching it like this. Like, please, please be okay. And my brother's sitting there with me. I <laughs> just like it's gonna suck. And uh, sure enough, while I didn't admit that it sucked, <laughs> I was like, yeah, we could probably get rid of this. It doesn't need to be in the collection. <laughs> 